welcome to Diverse Tech Founders, a podcast about the one thing older than capital, people like you and me. Now here's your host, Abraham J. Williamson. Welcome back to the Diverse Tech Founders podcast. I'm Abraham J. Williamson, and I'm excited about today for a couple of reasons. Of course, our guest is going to regale us with a new type of tech and innovation and investing perspective, Uh, but we're also recording from where this all started back in Studio 131, where we had our first app launch party a couple of years ago, uh, actually three years ago now. Uh, but we're here in what was my old apartment that is now Rob Newman, aka the Wall Street artist, his personal artistic studio. So excited to, to record from this location. But now let's shift to Brian Away of Refashion Ventures, who's going to let us know all about supply chain tech and what it means from his perspective to be a new emerging fund manager. So Brian, let's get into it. First question is where we always like to start with not you today, but you a while ago when you were much, much younger. Uh, talk to us about who you were when you were younger and if younger you would be friends with you today. Thank you, Abraham. I just finished listening to Viola Davis' book. It's an amazing book. If you haven't read it, I think you should read it. A bit of context and a bit of a disclaimer. I have a crush on Viola Davis. My wife already knows. (laughs) Before we started dating, my now wife had to agree, had to accept that if Viola Davis ever cast as much as a look in my direction, I might run off with her to a deserted island. <laughs> so, but it's it's a really good book. Um, uh, I think you should read it. And the thing that struck me about the book is, you know, where she talks about her childhood. And so it's interesting that you asked me about my childhood. She wet her bed till I think she was 13. I wet my bed till I was 13. I had a very serious speech disorder, so I had a really severe stutter uh, when I was a kid. I had uh, epileptic seizures, which I didn't realize I had until my parents had shipped me off from Kano to boarding school where we come from. And I was all by myself. And all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, wait, I'm epileptic. I went through a stretch in school where my academic performance was so bad in secondary school. My academic performance was so bad that the administration called a meeting of all the teachers to try to decide what are we going to do about Brian. He might disgrace the school. There's a standardized test that we used to take in Ghana at that time, the GCE O-levels. He might disgrace the school on the YAC GCE O-levels. But somehow I overcame all that and, you know, I'm here now. So I think Brian at age 12 would be really proud. That is good to hear. We're going to get into a little bit more about your recent accomplishments. But again, let's keep with the theme on your first and earliest and stick with that younger Brian, if it's relevant here. Talk to us about your earliest experiences with investing, innovation, technology. How did you go from debating and boarding school to running your own venture capital fund? What was that first touch that you had? I think if you went back and asked people who knew me when I was growing up and tell them what I'm doing now, it would probably be very difficult for them to believe because I didn't grow up 
around technology in the way that you would think someone who is <laughs> building a technology venture fund did. So as a kid, you know, we didn't own computers. My parents were not wealthy enough to buy us uh, uh, computers. The thing I do remember is that my younger brother had friends whose parents could afford to buy them computers. And each time he visited them, he'd come back and that's the only thing he could talk about. I just wanted to be left alone to do my math homework uh, when I came home from, from secondary school. When I was in secondary school and school was out of session, I lived with my grandfather in the village. And at the time, this is a village with no running water or electricity. In fact, when I was in school, we ran on a generator. It would come on at 6 p.m. and be off at 9 p.m. So we didn't have electricity, but for three hours. And the reason I remember this is because I was reading an article about the chief supply chain officer at, at American Eagle Outfitters. And he too, when he was growing up in India, I think it was in New Delhi, he was so poor that at night he would study with a kerosene uh, lantern. And that's what I did. When the generator was switched off at nine, I, would, I was supposed to go to sleep, but I would go find a room somewhere and close the door and close the windows and study with my kerosene lantern. In fact, I almost got expelled from school <laughs> for, for doing that. And then, you know, in the village where school was out of session, my grandfather is a peasant, was a peasant farmer. Uh, uh, most of my relatives are peasant farmers. So I would be herding cattle, go to the farm, spend the entire day there. But I always knew that I wanted to do something else. And so after secondary school, I was like, I, I took some time off. I was like, you, you know, I, I'm going to find a way to go to the United States to study because I realized that some of my schoolmates down in Accra, where, where I did my A-levels, were somehow getting financial aid to study in the United States. And I was like, if they can do it, surely, <laughs> surely I can do it. Now, what I realized once I started to really research it is that some of them were born in the United States. Their parents had come here for grad school. They were born here, so they were citizens. I was not, but I was like, there's got to be something. Uh, I took the SATs, I took the TOEFL, and then I won a grant that paid for my education at Connecticut College where I studied math and physics. And I think that's where my relationship and interest in technology as we think about it started. Okay, but how does math and physics translate into tech? Great question. This is something I haven't told. This is not something I discuss with a lot of people. But as an international student, when you are applying, right? So I mean, think of me in Accra, Ghana, applying to go to school in the United States, right? They send you all the materials, you go through it, you fill it, you send it back. So once I was admitted into Connecticut College, they send me a course registration material, course catalog, etc., etc. I knew I wanted to study math. I knew I probably wanted to study physics because those were my two favorite subjects in secondary school. Not chemistry, because I, I told you about my epilepsy. I had a seizure during an exam where I had been working with chemicals and the Bunsen burner and whatnot. So I said, no, I said I'm epileptic, I, I can't do chemistry. So physics and math. So I'm looking through, and remember I told you about my brother constantly harping on computers, computers, computers. So I'm looking through the course catalog and they have, you know, computer science courses. I was like, oh, Colin is always going on about computers. Maybe I should look at what these courses are about. 
And there were two courses that stood out to me. One was the artificial intelligence course, which I understood to mean you use computers to somehow teach machines how to think. And in fifth grade, I had a teacher for primary science who taught us about machines. And I really loved the topic. I was like, oh my God, this is how I could teach the machines I learned about in fifth grade to like do stuff on their own. I want to take that course. Then there was a virtual reality course. And when I read the course description, I was like, oh, this must be where you use computers to create an environment in which people from different places can share an experience. And the reason that struck me was because as a child, I loved folk tales. Folk tales, myths, legends, Greek mythology, Roman mythology, African mythology, Yoruba folk tales. I loved it. Anansi stories, I loved it. I was like, oh my God, if I took this course, I could create an environment where people from different parts of the world can experience these sorts of, of folk tales together. That seems like what this is about. I want to take that. But in order to take those two courses, I had to take Computer Science 111 and 212. Those were the prerequisites. When I read, you're going to laugh, when I read the description for COM 111, Intro to Computers, my conclusion was, this is the class in which they're going to teach me how to turn on a computer. <laughs> this is a class in which they're going to teach me how a computer works and whatnot. I didn't think it was a programming class. I didn't realize it wasn't. <laughs> Remember, I've never used a computer. I don't even really know what one looks like. First day of class at Connecticut College, Monday morning, 8.30 a.m. I go to COM 111 and Professor Wertheimer says, so by the time this class is over, you would have written your first program in Pascal. It didn't mean anything to me. All I know is half the class got up and left. I should have got up and left as well to try to cut the story short. And I didn't also know that you could drop a course. I didn't know that in the United States, you can drop a course. So I sit through this. My code never works. I don't know what the hell I'm doing. Towards the end of the semester, someone finally says, Brian, you know you can drop the course if you're struggling. I'm like, oh, let me go talk to, to the professor. So I go talk to him. He's like, well, Brian, let me take a, a look at your homework assignments and see how you're doing. He looks at the homework assignments and he said, actually, you're not doing that bad. I wouldn't drop the course if I were you. At the end of the semester, I get my transcript. Not doing that bad translated to maybe a C or a C plus. Might have even been, been a C minus, I can't remember. And so I was complaining about it one day to my friends because that was the worst grade I got on my, uh, my first semester transcript. And I said, you know, this computer science thing really messed up my GPA. And a student, I wasn't friends with him, didn't really know him, but he overheard me complaining and said, what course are you talking about? I said, it's COM 111 with Professor Wertheimer. And he said to me, I've been programming since I was in high school and I failed the course and I need to stay an extra semester to retake it. So I would gladly, I would gladly swap my grade with yours if you're so happy. <laughs> So I said, oh, okay, maybe I actually did fine after all. 
And then I decided, well, since I was so blockheaded about it and stuck through COM 111, I should probably just take COM 212, data structures and problem solving in C++. So I took that same experience. I got a C plus or C minus or C, I can't remember. After my freshman year, I said, okay, clearly computer science does not love me as much as I love it. And this flirtation, <laughs> this flirtation has to stop. So I double majored in math and physics. But if there is a time when my interest in technology as we think about it, which, you know, for me is software married with the real world and solving problems in the real world, I think that's where it started. So in summary... You have a love of folk tales. I have a love of folk tales. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Maybe uh, if we have some time, you can regale us with some I, of those. I come from a storytelling culture. So. Oh, good. Well, yeah. uh, happy to hear that. In fact, <laughs> we would love to hear the story of Refashion Ventures, how it started, what it is, and the origin that that you use to describe it. Like paint that that canvas for us. The story of Refashion Ventures. Let us know what that is and where it came from. So Refashioned Ventures is an early stage technology fund. We invest in supply chain technology. And for us, supply chain technology means any technology that aids in the production of goods and services, as well as in the consumption of those goods and services. So think of it as any technology that is used in production networks, production platforms, production ecosystems. That's what we invest in. We make the observation that for us, supply chain is not just logistics. Often when people hear the word as supply chain, they think of, lo of logistics and it makes complete sense because logistics is the part of the, su of the supply chain that most of us actually get to interact with. But supply chains are a whole lot bigger than, than logistics. So that's what we invest in. Okay, so if I'm sitting on this side of the pond and I was actually talking to one of my, my friends earlier as we were, we were waiting to catch up and they asked, well, what is supply chain tech? Isn't that just like computers or going back and forth to track inventory? Like what is supply chain tech if you don't know anything about it and when you hear logistics, you think FedEx? So I told you what a supply chain is, right? It's a network of organizations, people that collaborate to produce and consume things, right? That's a supply chain. So supply chain tech is any technology that you can apply to that process. So it could be software in some cases, it could be hardware in other cases, um, it could be advanced materials in some cases. It could be advanced manufacturing. Um, in 2022, when you're thinking about what goes on in supply chains, I think it's very important to think of information and data just because of the advances in computing uh, technology. So that's an important part of it as well. One of our LPs, Daniel Stanton, also known as Mr. Supply Chain, He's the author of the book, Supply Chain Management for Dummies. And one day on a podcast, <laughs> he poked fun at me. He said, Brian, so basically what you mean to tell me is that you're a supply chain technology specialist, but you invest in everything. I was like, why would you, why would you put me on the spot like that? But yes, <laughs> yes. 
Because the thing about supply chains is, you know, if you take a look around you, if there's anything that you can sense in any way, that thing exists because of the supply chain, right? There's an underlying process network of organizations and people that worked to create the thing. And so if you think about it that way, this year, global GDP is estimated to be about $100 trillion. That entire $100 trillion of global GDP is undergirded by supply chains. And that's why I think it's such a fascinating and interesting thing to be investing in. And you're not the only one because you've seen a lot of support behind your idea. You're wearing the shirt right now. The NY Supply Chain Meetup, you are building a global community of folks who are interested in this supply chain and supply chain technology and all that. But in your view, talk about the earliest evidence of traction you received with supply chain where you felt like this was worth building a fund around. Back to the question about the origin story. I started thinking about supply chains maybe in late 2015. And it's because previously at my old fund, KC Ventures, I had been a generalist. And at that point, I, I was thinking, you know what, being a generalist doesn't really suit my personality. Um, I think I need to find something that I can focus on as a specialist. I was looking for something big. I was looking for something where computing technology could make a huge difference. I was looking for something that was global in nature. I was looking for something where the problems are really hard to solve and entrenched. I was also looking for something where no matter how well you solve the problem today, there's going to be a new instance of the problem in the future. And I felt as if, you know, that would keep me occupied. Cool. So now let's talk networks of sort of how we came into contact with each other was on LinkedIn. You have over, I believe, 20,000 people who are looking at what you do on LinkedIn as followers and the like. Uh, but if you were to pick one person Talk about that person who, in your professional or personal network, provided value that was a little bit least expected. I mean, with 20,000, I'm sure you put something out there, you expect people to respond. But who is surprising you in your personal network based on what they're doing for you now? So I'll tell you two stories. Um, and I know I didn't answer the origin question about refashion, so maybe we can come back to it uh, later on. I'll tell you two stories. So in 2008... I had been let go from Lehman in March of 2008, and I finished business school in June, you know, so like, like anyone who has lost their job, I was, you know, job hunting. And 2008 was a tough economic environment, the financial crisis. And then I get an email that says, hey, Brian, we saw your profile online and we think you'll be perfect for a job that we're trying to fill will you will you talk to us yeah i'll talk to you i don't know this job you're trying to fill is because the description was vague well to cut a long story short that's how i landed at kc ventures i was hired as the second employee at a family office a single family office. They wanted someone to figure out what they should do for direct investing. First two years, I worked on some turnaround assignments. In 2011, they started a venture fund, committed altogether $100 million across two funds. 
And that's where I learned how to do early stage venture capital investing. I cracked the joke that they found me online, they sent me an email, and then they said, hey, Brian, here's $100 million to go teach yourself how to become a venture capitalist. Uh, by the time I left in 2018, the team had grown, the team that became the venture fund, the investing team, it had grown from just me as employee at number two at the family office plus uh, to me plus eight or nine other people. So that's one, Jeff Citron, uh, uh, Jeff Citron, the founder of Vonage, is his uh, family office. I left in 2018 because, you know, when you have a single LP fund for all intents and purposes, the whims and desires of the single LP dictates if the fund continues to exist or not. Um, the other is, you know, when Lisa and I started building, really started to focus on refashioned ventures in Q4 of 2018, pitched a lot of people, a lot of no's, supply chain technology, who cares about supply chain technology? It's 2018, you have to forgive them. <laughs> this is Q4 2018, how were they supposed to know? Who cares about supply chain technology? Isn't supply chain technology just trucks and dirty boxes? Like, Why would anyone invest in such a dumb thing? Does supply chain even need technology? Like, we heard it, we heard it all. We heard all the things that you could possibly hear. No one wanted to invest in the fund. 2019, same story, although we had uh, the, the tenor of the conversations improved. And 2020 hit, the pandemic made things really hard, right? And so towards the end of 2020, it was like, do we give up or do we think of something else? And as you probably have gathered, I, I, giving up is not really something I'm interested in. I really have no interest in giving up. If I want to do something, uh, I'm not interested in, in giving up. So at the end of 2020, we said, okay, well, thanks to the pandemic, the uh, significance of supply chains is more clear to everyone. So perhaps if we are a little bit creative, we actually can get this thing off the ground. And so we said, well, Angelist just released this thing called the Rolling Fund. And it's been around for, you know, the better part of a year now. Everyone we talked to said, no, don't do a rolling fund. They're terrible. It's Angelist. Don't do it on Angelist. Jesus Christ. Anyway, so I spent a lot of time thinking about it. And ultimately, I said to Lisa, everyone says we shouldn't do a rolling fund. We're going to do a rolling fund. We're going to do a rolling fund because they don't know what they're talking about. So we did a rolling fund and we decided to do it as a 506C, which means that you can talk about it publicly. You, you can do public solicitation. And I said, you know, let me reach out to some of the people I've known who understand this a little better than most and let's see what happens. And so I sent an email to a gentleman by the name of Ben Gordon. He runs a fund called uh, Cambridge Capital, uh, which is a logistics, a growth stage, a logistics technology fund. And he was the first person to say, yes, count me in. I'm in for 25K, which was the minimum commitment. And yes, you can tell other people I'm in. And so then we went to other people and we said, Ben Gordon is in. He's like probably the best logistics technology investor in the world. 
what do you think? And then I think the second commitment came from Albert at Union Square Ventures. Uh, he's one of the managing partners. I, I, I love Albert. I, I've always said when I grow up as a VC, I'd like to be like Albert. Um, and so he said yes as well and then was off to, to, to the races. We've now, we now have north of a million dollars in commitments. We've made 18 investments. We just closed our 18th investment um, last week. Uh, technically, we've been in business for exactly a year. That is awesome. <laughs> I learned a lot more. You are a pretty good storyteller. Uh, speaking of stories, did we hear correctly that initially you were a turnaround king? Is that right? Well, I, I wouldn't describe myself as a turnaround king, but when I went to business school at NYU, and the reason I went to NYU specifically, only business school I applied to is because in terms of bankruptcy and turnarounds, they have the best, the best set of courses. I mean, Steve Altman, I think, of the Altman Z School is, is on the faculty at NYU. He's been there for maybe, I don't know, 40 going on 50 years now <laughs> like yes i want to and so in business school i took every turnaround and distressed investing course that i could lay my hands on came to three courses and this is my thinking at the time i wanted to go into equity research and i thought the job of an equity research analyst is to figure out what are the levers that will contribute to growth in a company, right? How can you uh, increase uh, shareholder value? What better way to understand that than to study the things that destroy shareholder value? And if I, if I can understand turnarounds and bankruptcy and distressed investing, I ought to be able to function more effectively as an equity research analyst and so that's that's once i landed at casey holdings at the family office they were like hey brian so we made these two investments as you can imagine they're struggling fine dining restaurants private jet charter keep them alive <laughs> keep them alive the best part of it all is my prior experience before then had nothing to do with investing. I mean, I studied math and physics in school. Yes, I finished my MBA, but after college, I worked as an actuary. Then I worked for the head of group diversity at UBS. I was a statistical research analyst. Then I worked for the head of diversity at Lehman, and I was a number cruncher there too. So I'm not the person that you would look at and say, yes, he's the turnaround. <laughs> he's the person you should bring to do a turnaround. But I think perhaps what, perhaps what they noticed during the interview process is that I, I am self-directed, self-motivated, and I'm really, really good at teaching myself. Um, uh, and so maybe that's what that's what gave me a leg up over all the other people that they could have hired. Because it's it's interesting in two thousand and eight, a lot of people were being let go from Wall Street, and so there are lots of people with much more direct experience that they could have hired. Uh, but somehow I got the job. And now we are looking at you, and I I want to stay here for a minute because. A number of people listening right now who may be running their own startup probably feels like some days they're in a distressed situation where they're low on cash, they're tight on cash. Talk about what you would tell them based on your prior experience. Well, it's interesting because once we got into startup investing, I was like, wait, it's exactly the same thing. In both cases, 
startup or distress, you need to keep the company alive. In both cases, you need to earn the trust of customers. In both cases, you need to prove that you can either start creating value or continue creating value. And in both cases, you need to find a way to extract some value for yourself. So it, you know, I, I didn't realize it at the time because when I was in business school, I didn't even know what venture capital was. I wasn't thinking about being a VC. I just wanted to do you know, distressed investing and equity research and, and whatnot. I think the advice I would give, and it sounds somewhat uh, trite because you hear it everywhere, but I think it's really worth internalizing, is to focus on the customer. Focus on your customer, focus on making them as happy and as satisfied as possible. As a child, one of the things I did is I helped my mom as she tried various small businesses at home. She quit teaching my parents are teachers. She quit teaching uh, when I was in first grade and started building small businesses at home. And one of the things I did was help her. So I'd go to school and when I came home, I'd help her do all the various things that she tried. And I think the reason she succeeded, ultimately she built a school and has been running the school for probably going on 30 years now. Um, but I think why she succeeded at at everything she tried was her focus on making her customers happy. The school is the one that took because the school is what married her unique genius as an individual with something that was needed by you know the, the society, by the community. She, she's a genius teacher. She takes kids that everyone else has given up on and she turns them into amazing she turns them into amazing like they go they leave her school which is under resourced under capitalized like you would look at it and you wouldn't give it a second thought they leave her school and they go elsewhere and it's like oh my god oh my god how are these kids <laughs> like sometimes they'll leave her school and usually when when she started it was just a nursery school Kids would leave her hands like they just finished a nursery school. They'd go to the next school somewhere else and they'd need to skip two or three grades because they were just that far ahead of everyone else. And so I think the advice that I'd give to founders, if you haven't started, you know, the thing that you should start should be something that marries a need with your unique area of individual uh, genius. And if you're building something already, I would say focus on making your customers happy. Competition doesn't really matter if your customers are happy. There's an adage, I don't know if you'd call it an adage or a saying, but Professor Clayton Christensen, the late Harvard professor, he, he's written a book called The Innovator's Solution. So the interesting thing is most people and I don't even know if we can say most people because I don't know if most people actually read the book. I think they read an article and then they jump to conclusions. But most people have read or have heard of the innovator's dilemma, which is the first one, right? That talks about disruptive innovation and so on and so forth. Uh, not many people have gone on to read the second book, which is the innovator's solution. And in the innovator's solution, he says, startups should be patient for growth, 
but impatient for profits. And I think focusing on ensuring that your customers are happy and getting value from what you're doing is how you get to being profitable. And the reason you should be patient for growth but impatient for profit is because if you're impatient for profit and you get to the point of being profitable, your destiny is in your hands. And, you know, some people, people who are like steeped in startup landia and startup law might say, well, no, that doesn't, you know, VCs want us. Even Paul Graham at Y Combinator says the same thing. He wrote an, an essay, which I think is, is uh, are you default dead or default alive? Now, how do you become default alive? By knowing how to earn a profit. You become default alive by knowing how to, to earn a profit. Now, knowing how to earn a profit is different from deciding if you should earn a profit. Right? It's very different from deciding if you should earn a profit. But knowing what you do, you need to do to be profitable and to stay alive for as long as necessary is, is critical. Once you know how to do that, then you can say, okay, but we really want to go big. So we're going to raise money from VCs. We're going to go for growth. The minute we hit a headwind, we know exactly what we need to do to be profitable and to stay alive. Thanks for joining this week on Diverse Tech Founders with Abraham J. Williamson. If you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. You can do it right now. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us too.